Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Ion Veterans ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. There are nearly 20 million military vets in the U.S. And each week, we focus on their stories. This is CBS Eye on Veterans. Welcome back to CBS Eye on Veterans. I am Navy veteran and journalist Phil Briggs with the military news and lifestyle website made for veterans, ConnectingVets.com. Now, we're going to have one of the shows I absolutely love to do today. This is one of my favorite types of interviews. It's about a veteran whose post-military career sounds like an action-adventure movie or like a thrilling network TV drama. We'll learn what it's like to be an executive protection specialist. Now, don't confuse that with bodyguard for elite clientele. Uh, before you go thinking this is some Kevin Costner, Whitney Houston movie reboot, today we're talking to the real deal. Yeah, those guys in the dark suits and the sunglasses, huge muscles and earpieces, and they guard some of the world's most valuable assets. Now, not just celebrities, although I'm sure they do guard their fair share of billionaires and celebrities. Oftentimes they work in countries where things can become deadly in a matter of seconds. And losing their client's cargo or their client themselves could have dire consequences. So let's meet our guest. Byron Rogers is a Marine Corps vet who served multiple tours in Iraq and has survived some of the worst days of the global war on terrorism. But as we'll hear, his calling to serve as a protector began early in life and can easily be described as miraculous. So let's say hello to Byron Rogers, the CEO of an executive protection company called Bravo Research Group. He's a trainer of elite executive protection specialists, an author, a podcaster, and beneath the suit, the tactical gear, and the firepower, he's a Marine on a mission to be the protector. Byron, welcome to the show, brother. 
Boom, Phil. Hey, it's such an honor. That was the best introduction I've ever received. That was, I loved it, man. Thank you so much. Thank you. And it's complicated because I do a lot of things. So thank you, sir. Yeah, man. I did try to weave it all in there, but uh, it was really good getting to know you last week on the phone. I I honestly sure. say that these are kind of my favorite interviews because they're biographical, but yours in particular it's spiritual, man. It's, you know, yeah. when we chatted and understood that we both kind of have a shared interest in, you know, worshiping our God and loving Jesus, I just couldn't have felt any closer to a guest. And I really found this story just so fascinating because even if you're not a religious person, the spirituality that you found through your life is really amazing. And I love how you're putting it into action by being an executive protection specialist. Uh, let's start with some of the highlight reels from your time in the Marine Corps. Byron yeah. Rogers is a Marine standing on the yellow footprints and his life's going to get changed. <laughs> Tell me about uh, some of the greatest hits. Yeah, man. No, thank you. Um, I mean, in a word, uh, as a professional protector, it's really interesting because I've just been protected, you know, I've been protected. And I think um, as a young man, I always wanted to, I knew I was a warrior at a young age and growing up in an age where it was difficult to establish your manhood for yourself. Um, and then I have a father who's like Tony Montana and like Donald Trump in one person, like in a Caribbean guy, like he's just that type of a huge individual. And um, you know, he started a task force in the Bahamas. He got shot at point blank range with a shotgun and survived. He like, he, he was a very successful businessman. So growing up, I was like, well, how can I, you know, if I found the cure for AIDS, he'd be like, son, but you didn't get the cure for cancer. Go back into room and figure it out. You know what I mean? So, so growing up, I was, it was like that, you know? So I remember thinking to myself, like, how can I, establish my own masculinity and how can I, um, I know I'm a warrior, but like, what does God have? How can you be a good warrior? And the Marine Corps was the first place. Like, how can a warrior be a positive thing? And over my journey of life, I've realized that being a warrior is a very high elite active service. You have to train in order to even be good enough to do this. Um, and it's one of the highest actives, no greater love than this, than a man be willing to lay down his life for another. Right. So I, I, I really trained myself to be formidable and to be a workman that needed not be ashamed and to be able to to stand against evil, formidable to evil type of human being. And that's what the Marine Corps gave me, uh, gave me the opportunity to earn my masculinity and earn my place as a as a warrior for good things in the world to the best of my ability. Right. Uh, regardless of the politics, just being a light wherever I was and, and dealing with people in an equitable manner as best as I could within the scope of our mission, you know, and it was such an amazing experience. And I'd also say it's probably one of the best educations that you could get learning, uh, you know, emotional intelligence and discipline and uh, learning how to suffer well, you know, and, and cultivating these things that would just drive me through life. It was amazing. And so, yeah, man, we kicked off boot camp, you know, and, and, and there was times in boot camp where I was pushed beyond what I, what I thought I could do, which was such a beautiful education, such one of the most priceless educations. And, and I had asked God, you know, on multiple occasions for the strength to be able to get through things. And so I learned more about my superpowers and bootcamp was awesome, man. I, I mean, I was the guy on training day seven that I'll never forget. Uh, where, where they got, you know, I was a diet recruit, you know, so I, I had to cut from, I think I was 225. I cut to like, I cut to like 211 to get in 
And then I, and I, and I played six, eight football, you know, and I played Ironman, man. So I played all four ways. And I, we had the second best weightlifting program in the state of Washington, Gay Harbor High School. And, and I remember I got, I was that guy that got caught with the peanut butter in my pouches on training day seven. And uh, I found myself winning a pugil stick tournament. That was really cool. But there was this one guy in my platoon named Heidsman, man. And he was like, I don't know, like to me, he was like 48 years old. He was like a grown man, straight up. He was a biker. He had a white tiger tattoo down his chest, down down his his side. And he had a big knife wound and he was just jacked. And he was a D1 athlete. And I asked him what he did before he got in the Marine Corps. And he's like, well, I was homeless, but I used to travel with a biker gang. And we would just go into bars and I would fight for money. And then I just figured I'd join the Marine Corps and go recon. And I just remember being like, wow. So I beat all these guys in this pupil stick tournament. And he beat all the other guys. And we had two winners in our platoon. Platoon 2027. And uh I remember our instructors were like, yeah, we win. And then the other instructors were like, now let's have Rogers and Heitzman's fight. And I just remember being like, I'm going to die today. Like, 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 like <laughs> you can be as macho as you want. But like. Dude, there's levels, bro. And I remember thinking like, well, okay. And I remember getting ready. It was Thunderdome too. So Thunderdome in the Marine Corps, you know, you start off at at one place and you sprint into the Thunderdome and then you fight. And now no one can see you in Thunderdome. There's no cameras inside the actual Thunderdome. It's an enclosed space. So you will get beat almost to death inside the Thunderdome. You know, what happens in the Thunderdome stays in the Thunderdome. And I remember getting ready and I remember I I was getting ready to go in there with him and we were setting up and I had a football helmet on and I was really good at football. And I remember, man, I remember being like, well, I got a helmet and a pugil stick. And it was like my David and Goliath moment. And I just remember being like, I'm going to hit this dude in the head with my helmet, head to head contact so hard. I'm going to kill myself right now on impact. I will die. And I literally remember like, like, like it was like time stood still and like a wind blew. And I was like, father, give me the strength. And dude, I ran into that. I mean, I sprinted into it. And I remember having flashbacks of football because I was a linebacker and pulling guard. And I remember like pulling around that corner and I was like everything I had. And I just blew into that, into that Thunderdome directly at him and he didn't know what to do. And he stopped and he was going to fight me. Well, I wasn't stopping. I brought the heat and he had to move really quickly. And I flew straight past him, didn't even touch him, smashed into the wall, almost like exploded. And, uh, he tore his ACL. And, uh, I don't know if my guardian <laughs> angels. Yeah, I know. Poor guy. I don't know if my guardian angels hooked me up that day or not. Poor Heisman. I love you, man, wherever you are. And, uh, I remember just being like, man, you know, like I survived. And my instructors looked at me afterwards and they were like, you know, you shouldn't have survived that. And I was like, oh, you know, and then they were like, <laughs> and they're like, but you're here and he's not. And I guess that's all that matters. And I just remember, you know, not just from that experience, but many experiences over the course of my life leading up to that experience and then into combat, you know, I've been protected and I've been guided and uh, I've had out-of-body experiences from getting blown up in Iraq. I caught five IEDs and things like that. And um, I've been protected. And now I'm a pro- and I'm a protector. It's a very interesting dynamic that I've been able to live during this life by the mm. grace of God. Amen. And that's one story. I, we didn't even get to that one when I framed the outline. <laughs> and I, that's the best <laughs> story ever. Like that tops full metal jacket, Arlie <laughs> Ermey, that right there, sprinting into the Thunderdome. Oh. I, I got to see that on the big screen one day. Um, where'd you go? 
with the Corps once you uh, got to be a Marine? I went to 3-1 Lima Company Weapons Platoon right after they got back from Fallujah. So we're in boot camp, school circle. Dudes are invading Fallujah. You know, they're like, you guys are going to miss, you know, you're going to miss the initial invasion. And we're all sad. We're like, no, like, we're not going to Valhalla. We want to go to war. Because, you know, your programming is like, like at its top at that point, right? You know, and I remember I got there and it was literally... It was like a scene from Full Metal Jacket. Like I got, I just remember like walking up with my little sea bag and I had my other, my other guy with me, Emerson. And we went to our, we went to our barracks and, uh, I, uh, we, we, we asked a senior Marine, excuse me, do you know where 3 1 Lima Company is? And he's like, yeah, man, just hop in the elevator and go up top, go to the top floor. They're all up there. And I remember getting in this elevator and as we're going up and you just hear like rock music, rap music. Price and porn, like, like it's all these great and dudes screaming and like running around and fighting. And like, you can smell like pizza and beer. And I'm just like, we're going up and it's like, you're descending into like utter chaos. And I just remember like, you hear the elevator just go ding. And as it dings, everyone shuts all the music and everything off because only made men, like only staff NCOs go in the elevator. So if someone's using the elevator, this is Marine Corps. We do everything the hard way. You go up the stairs to so your whole entire life. So, like, they hear that ding, someone's on the floor, everything shuts off. Everyone looks out the side of the, the you know, all the way down the, the hallway, the catwalk. And, man, when they saw two fresh, fresh meat, fresh Marines walk out of that elevator, the chaos began. They ran, jumped on top of us, grabbed Emerson. I didn't see, I saw Emerson again at, like, 1.30 that night trying to, they, they <laughs> there was, like, three you know, Marines chasing him. He had to catch one of them, and they were like hazing him. He's running all over the place. And I saw him, and I was in a room just doing push-up, reciting my general orders. It was like one thirty that night, and that was that was my first contact with the fleet. They just got back from war, so they were just homicidal Uncle Sam's misguided children maniacs. But the best people to train me to go to war with them just, you know, six, seven, eight month, months later, I would have had it no other way because they'll make a man. They made a man out of me before I had to go and, and prove myself, so... It was it was amazing. That right there, my friends, is the most vivid <laughs> description you can hear of what it's like to go to a party full of Marines on Liberty, yeah. you know, on their day off. I, I mean, that is just I can only I can imagine remember. the twisted fun yeah. they had with you two fresh boots. Oh man, that's awesome. Yeah, uh, you say first Fallujah, right? These guys had just come back. Of course, as history notes, you know, we had a surge there. I don't know the details of why. It ended and why then we had to re-engage, but then did you go back to what was arguably one of the deadliest days of combat that we've experienced, uh, and that was Fallujah too. Were you on that deployment? Uh, so I didn't go back to Fallujah. We passed through there. I was in uh, Haditha and uh, Barwana, so that Haditha massacre and all that stuff, that was, you know, my units were in there. That was Kilo Company. I was Lima Company, so I was across the street, but... Yeah, man, we went back for the initial. There's there's movies about um about clearing um Haditha, the battle for Haditha. That was definitely a good time. I got stories about that too, man. My first night in combat and all that good stuff. <laughs> it was it was an amazing deployment, and it you know like in short, you know, I just remember our initial invasion, you know, and I remember you know gearing up. The night before we went in, something like three a.m., we're painting skeletons on our face. We're at the Haditha Dam. And we're getting ready to invade and it's all just awesome and everyone's excited and it's, but, but there's a really inter- interesting energy, man. Like it's like a stillness, 
you know, and you're getting ready to go really do war. And I remember getting in these vehicles and uh, we're driving through the desert and we meet up with, um, we, sorry, my daughter just came in the room. <laughs> hey, baby. Oh, no worries. <laughs> hey, baby, I love you. Quick kissy, daddy's in the meeting. I love you. Okay. Can you close the door for me? Thank you. Thank you. I love you. Have fun at swim class. And um, the juxtaposition there, by the way, absolutely perfect. I'm keeping that edit in right there. Like we're riding into war and then this hardened Marine I'm talking to stops. He goes, hi, honey. (laughs) 100%, bro. You got to be able to do it all, man. I I love love it, it, dude. I love it. take Take me back to the MRAP in the desert. Yeah, right. So we're, we're riding through the desert. We're on seven tons. And I remember staring at the city as we drive towards combat. And you're just looking at the city and you're just like, we're going to take over a city right now. It's about to go down. Like, this is my moment. Like, this is when we prove ourselves. This is when we find out what the training's really all about. And we stop and we pick up some uh, Iraqi army dudes. And, you know, they're all like kind of weird and, you know, different cultural things, you know, Mr. Mr talking to us like where are you from what's up and we're we're and i remember looking at them being like this is really interesting and then i'm watching the skyline in front of me of the city we're going to take over and all of a sudden it just goes and disappears then we're in the desert there's no lights okay this is pitch absolute black darkness and i remember and i was so i was a boot i didn't know anything so i was like hey guys the power just went off to that city and my seniors look at me and they're like, yeah, idiot. Recon just cut the power. We're about to take over the city. And I was like, wow, like we can do that. And then right after that, man, all of a sudden a Bradley goes flying past us. And I remember watching them and they were trying to get into the city before us. And um, there was a minefield in front of us and they drove right past. And I heard guys trying to get on the radio and try to stop them and try to get on their free frequency to try to get their attention and boom man i saw my first explosion um and it was the first time i saw like a mushroom cloud and i remember being like wow that's a mushroom cloud and then you start to hear all the rounds inside the bradley cooking off and sounds like popcorn and people yelling and screaming and things going on in the distance and they're trying to get units up there but it's a minefield and the chaos begins right and i just remember uh i remember seeing this and being like this doesn't look real and uh that voice that's guided me came back to me and said, you don't know what real is yet, son. And I, that was the moment where I was like, this is not a video game. Like there are no response. Like, like, you know, that when you get on a, on a roller coaster and you're like, this is a great idea. And then click, click, click. And you're like, whose idea was this anyway? Like, why did I even get on this roller coaster? Like, can I get off? Like, is there like almost that kind of started happening? And then right after that, man, a pops went up, which is like a hundred grenades on a string with a rocket in front of it. And they lay down, and it lays down a line of uh, grenades behind it, and then a boom, we blow a big trench through the through the minefield. Tanks start doing thunder runs. They fly past us. Cue the Led Zeppelin, metal music. Psyops starts playing rock music. Green smoke is coming out of the tanks as they go into the into the city. And get out, go, go, go. We get out behind them, and we start running into the city. I got it. I'm a small gunner. I'm an O351. So I got a, a big rocket launcher, multiple rockets, C4, an AR, and I'm running in. And I get chills even talking about it. I'm running in, and I remember I get to my first house, and I see a hand. I see a wooden handle, and I turn the corner, and I'm like, this is my guy. And I touch the trigger, and it's an old man walking on crutches in his kitchen. 
And I just remember being like, I got to really calm down. Then we go firm in our first house and you're just sitting there listening, man. And you can hear psyops. They cut off the rock music and you hear women screaming, babies crying, piano riffs, sniper shots, any creepy noise they can come up with evil laughter, like, <laughs> and you hear the mosque kick on and the mosque is like, kill the infidels. And then you hear firefights breaking out, dogs barking. And then my senior Marine, uh, uh, at the time, Corporal Praxis, Thomas Praxis, one of the best Marines I ever served under, comes up to me. And I'm on a roof set in security, just waiting, just watching. It's no early morning. And he comes up and he's like, hey, Rogers. He's like, how you doing? I'm like, I'm good, man. He's like, freaking Twilight Zone out here, isn't it? And I'm like, yes, yes, Corporal, it is. And uh, that was my first night. And in the morning, I found uh, I found an IED and almost blew myself up. <laughs> mm. <laughs> That's a whole other story. I thank God for the grace. <laughs> No doubt. And again, taking me right there, taking us all right there. Uh, I absolutely love talking to you, Byron. Holy bleep. Um, and let's talk a little bit before we get to the transition to being a protector and taking that combat mm-hmm. experience, which, you know, obviously you live to tell about, uh, mm-hmm. that makes you qualified to be private line security. However, what I love about your story is that it didn't just start this being a protector, this calling to protect people did not begin with any of that that we just heard. Began when you were five and living under the shadow of that giant figure that was your father, bigger than life, uber masculine, uh, businessman, successful down in the Bahamas. And here you are, a five-year-old. And that call to be a protector, I think, was so powerful. Share with me that story. Yeah. That's amazing because in this situation, ultimately that's what I did. I never really thought about it that way, actually, the way you put it, but I protected my family by the grace of God. And um it was such an interesting little portal of reality. Like, you know, I'm a, here I am, you know, like you think of David, you know, like here I am this little like, four or five-year-old in the Bahamas. And this is before my dad made a bunch of money. So we're still living in the shanty towns in the Bahamas, back in the bush kind of. And, you know, you got chickens running around in the streets and packs of dogs that'll eat you if you get caught slipping. And, uh, yeah, man, I'm sitting on the couch uh, watching some TV and I'm visiting my dad for the summer and I'm getting comfortable. And I'm like, I'm going to go to sleep. Like, I'm just going to sleep out here. I don't want to sleep in my bed. So... Uh, I'm getting ready to just rack out and uh, I hear a voice and it was when you're that little, everything's kind of real, you know? So you just kind of like, it wasn't weird for me. Like I, I remember it was very like almost not familiar, but like not, re- not weird. This voice that was almost like an audible voice. It was not from me that was like, go sleep in your dad's room. And I was like, no, <laughs> like this isn't some holier than thou story. Of like this ultra holy little kid. Like this was just me being a little kid. And he was like, go sleep in your dad's room. And I was like, no, I'm comfortable. It's nice out here. The air condition's good. The couch is cozy. I wanted to sleep out here. And, and I hear that voice again, go sleep in your father's room. And I was like, kind of arguing. And then I tried to go to sleep and I can't go to sleep. Like I'm wide awake. And I just remember being like, Ah. And I, I remember thinking about this story with Samuel where like God's like talking to him and I, and, and, and I was like, and I just learned it in, in nursery school and I was kind of like, okay, well, 
I guess God's talking to me. I guess I got to go do this. And so I get up and I go and I go get comfortable in my dad's room. And the voice comes back to me and it's like, go get your sister off the couch. And I'm like, you're supposed to know everything. And if you know everything, you know, I can't get my big sister off the couch because she's like, my big sister's like Queen Latifah. Like I'm little, she's going to beat me up. There's no way I can, there's no way I can get her to do it. <laughs> and so I remember being like, no, like you're supposed to know everything. I, 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 I can't do that. And he's like, go in the living room and I'll tell you what to do. I walk in the living room. I don't hear anything. Instantly, the thought comes to my mind, snatch her blankets, run in the room. She'll get cold. She'll come in the room. So I walk up, I sneak up and I snatch her blankets and I run in the room really quick. And sure enough, 30 seconds goes by. She gets up, comes in the room, smacks me around, takes all the blankets, lays down. And now I'm like laying there and I like snuggle under like a little piece of blanket. And uh, I listen and I don't hear anything. And then I hear that voice comes back to me again and is like, lock the door. And I lock the door and then I lay down and I don't hear anything. And I feel peace, like you can go to sleep now. And so I go to sleep. And a few, however long later, boom, I wake up and I'm wide awake and I'm waiting to hear this voice, but it's silent. It's still, there's not going to be, I just knew there. I wasn't going to hear anything. And I'm looking around the room and I start to hear this noise and I don't know what it is. I'm thinking maybe another rat got in and like, is there something eating through the wall? And there's this little like clicky, click, scratchy, scratch, clicky, click noise. And I'm looking around and uh, my dad's snoring like a chainsaw. And eventually I look in front of me and right in front of my face, the doorknob is moving and shaking. And I'm sitting here like watching this doorknob shake and that boogeyman fear just seizes my body. And I remember just being frozen for a second. And then I remember being like, you've got to move. You have to make a move. And I'm staring at this doorknob shaking it. And it's the same height as me at this time. And I'm staring at it. And then uh, I go over to my dad and I'm like, dad, 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 someone's trying to get in the room. And, you know, my dad's a warrior. So you wake him up. You got to like make sure you're one arm's distance. <laughs> you don't want to get knocked across the room. So I wake him up. I'm like, dad, someone's trying to get in the room. And he stops snoring and they stop trying to pick the lock. And I'm like worried my dad's not going to believe me now. Cause I'm like, I just saw this. And, and he sits there and he's quiet for a while. And then they start shaking the doorknob. He gets up, grabs his shotgun underneath the, from underneath the bed racks around and you hear six like a, a group of people sprint through the living room trip over the coffee table and psh, the that's the the screen door slam in behind them as they exit the property we got them on camera there's a, t- a team like a group of five or six guys now this is the bahamas shantytown they'll clean your house out in eight minutes you won't know anything your house is dang near on blocks uh, and they're in and out of your house if they break in to steal something. But my dad had just started the first task force, private security task force in the Bahamas. And he had one of the biggest private security companies in the Bahamas. They were arresting a lot of people at that time. And he goes out, clears the house, buck naked. <laughs> I'll never forget it. And uh it looked like those guys were there to assassinate my father. And me and my sister would have been sleeping on the couch and his room door wouldn't have been locked. And that could have been the end of me and, and a lot of people that I love that night. And so by the grace of God, because I listened and was honored with that information, uh, I was able to protect my family, you know, and that led to the luxury of not so much having to have so much faith because after that, it's like, I just, I just know he's with me and he's been guiding me through my life. And, and it's just a, such a really interesting situation to be a protector 
But when I look at my life and the amount of times I almost died, all the ways that I've been protected, I just have to thank him for his grace and yeah. be who I was created to be in this world. By the grace of God, it's going to come up so many times in this interview. But <laughs> that right there, I got the hairs in the back of my neck standing up because it is a beautiful, beautiful thing to recognize one's calling. It's also beautiful how it reappears several times in your life, being hit with the ID or being hit with the explosives at that moment. You felt his presence again. You felt something, you know, that can only be described as an out of body experience. Kind of unpack that one for me. Yeah. There's, there's two stories, you know, where God just kept me. I was hit by five blasts, five IEDs. So I've been blown up five times, <laughs> which is like, how in the heck? Like even saying it is, is weird. Um, and I love but, how Marine laughs at that too, by the way. You can yeah. hear Marine coming out of him. He's like, <laughs> I should be dead. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They, I didn't get to execute my final mission in country because I had to fly out because my chain of command was like, no, dude, you've been blown up too many times. You get hit again. We don't know what your brain's going to do. Like, but for a Marine, it's not too weird. You know, like we, dude, I had one buddy who caught 10 IEDs, man. I watched this guy get launched a few hundred feet in the air in front of me. Somehow he grabbed his rifle on his way up. I don't know how that happened, but I mean, like, 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 this isn't weird. Like, so many of us went through, you know, catching these IEDs and, and the stuff that, you know, I'm talking about. But for me, the one that got me, the final IED uh, was 60-some pounds of homemade explosives. And it detonated directly under my seat while I was in a seven-ton. And I uh, were rolling out, and, and I'm, like, kind of leaning over the side of the seven-ton. And one of my guys is basically like, hey, Rogers, like, lean back. You know, like if you get hit, like today, you know, we could get hit and I don't want you in a bad position. I was like, dude, I'm going to be good. If something happens, I'm right. I'm wrecking shop. Right. <laughs> and, uh, I remember I hear Foster, my buddy who, who did, he caught like 10 IEDs out there. God bless him. But he had like a sixth sense for knowing when we're going to get blown up. I don't know what happened, but he just knew. And he always, we always listen to Foster, man. If he said something and Foster comes over the radio and he's just like, Silverback, I got a bad feeling. I'm gonna, I'm gonna slow down real quick. We're gonna stop and look around. I'm like, Roger that, dude. Do whatever you gotta do. And, uh, as he rolls to a stop, I realized that I'm in another place. There was, in my hindsight, I can real, I can remember slightly, like my physiology, like I can remember pressure going through my body. And I have a slight memory of me like being really uncomfortably kind of folded in half, kind of like, but I didn't perceive anything that happened. All of a sudden, I just was like perfectly fine and I was perfectly calm and I was totally at peace. And I was in like a black space is really the only way to explain it. And I remember kind of looking around and just being like kind of in awe. And then I was like, where am I? And what's going on, I remember I could pull up my last thoughts. And I was actually able to see my thoughts. And my last thoughts on this earth, they came up on a screen. Like, not a screen, but like I could read them. It was like one of those MS-DOS computers. It was like, why is the water cooler up my ass? <laughs> and I was kind of like, why is the water cooler trying to come? And I was confused for a second. And then I, I realized like, oh, that's because I was sitting on a water cooler. I was sitting on one of those Gatorade water coolers and i was the troop commander in the back of a seven ton with like with um nine different marines and i was in charge of like if we hit a if we hit a target 
we'd get out and I'd run my teams and we would take over the objective and, and do everything. And so I was in the safest place I could come up with in that vehicle, which was the back, back left driver's side corner on top of a water cooler. And um once I read that and I started to realize it started to come back to me, I was like, oh, I was sitting on a water cooler. Oh, I was, I was in Iraq. I was on patrol. And then the deepest sorrow I'd ever experienced in my entire life I have ever experienced, just like I got gut punched in the solar plexus, just boom, just exploded from the inside of me as I realized that, like, I'm dead. And I kind of at this point started to, like, appear back in that environment and I started to realize like I'm dead like I'm a pile of guts on the floor in Iraq and then I was like there in the in the in the in the vehicle and I started to be like oh my gosh I'm so sorry and I started to see my family and I was like mom mom and I went and I like saw everyone and kind of talked to everyone I was like mom mom I'm so sorry I died in Iraq and I started to see different people and apologize and like my girlfriend was like washing dishes like and I was like I'm so sorry I'm sorry and I was like telling everyone I was sorry. Now, my dad, before I joined the Marine Corps, he was like, you're not joining the Marine Corps. To the point where I was like, hmm, I'm joining the Marine Corps. He's like, you're coming to the Bahamas. You're going to be a businessman. You're going to work with me. And I was like, no, I'm joining the Marine Corps. This escalated into me being dangled off the balcony of a hotel after my high school graduation. And I'm dangling like this, like (laughs) kind of head down. And he's holding me. And I remember him looking at me and I just relaxed. And he's like, why aren't you afraid? And I said, because either um, you're going to drop me off the balcony or I'm going to the Marine Corps. <laughs> and, he, I said, and he pulled me back up and he was like, okay. And then he let me leave the room, you know, and he stopped me before I left the room. And he said, you can, you know, do what you feel like you need to do, but don't die. And I was like, I'll do my best father. You know, I was like, pray for me. Mm-hmm. And so when I saw him, it was horrible. I saw him and I was like, dad, dad, I'm, I'm a pile of guts on the floor in Iraq. I'm so sorry. I died. And, and I remember being so upset about that. And then I remember getting to my grandma and my grandma, and it's like some touched by an angel stuff. It's like cheesy, but it's like what happened. And my grandma used to always tell me when I was a young a little boy, and she would always say like, Byron, she's an old Cherokee woman. When everything, when something that's stronger than you happens, you just say, Jesus, 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 by the third time, it'll go away. And I see my grandma and I start praying and I just start saying, Jesus, 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 please, Jesus. And, um, I remember, I remember I was upset because I knew I failed and I died. And I was also upset because I was like, dude, I'm 19. I haven't lived. I haven't lived with any, any purpose. And I was so upset at how finite it was and it was over. And I hadn't really, really lived and like, leaned into it. And I remember saying to God, I was like, father, if I, if you give me another chance, I may never be what you have called me to be. I may never be good enough. I may never do all the, all the stuff, but I promise you. And I said it like this too. I was like, I will go so hard in the paint. <laughs> I was like, I'll go. So I'll go ham. I said hard in the paint. And I said, ham. I was like, I will go ham at this life. I'll give everything I have every single day I get. I probably, and I meant that trash from the bottom of my heart. I get chills thinking about it. And I just kept praying to Jesus. And then all of a sudden I was back in my body and my eyes opened up. And I remember at some point, I remember seeing my buddy look down at my body, but I couldn't see my body, but I could see the side of his head. 
And then I was back in my body and I remember I couldn't move my body. And I was like, father, I can't do this. I need my body. And then almost like a jet engine turned back on. Like I remember just like powering up and I got my power and I, I got the, I was furious. Like a, like a righteous anger came over me and I was like, I will not die here. And the vehicle's smoking because it's catching on fire. And I look over and the ladder is like, jammed shut we're like locked in here and the vehicle's starting to smoke and all my guys are still kind of shell-shocked from getting blown up and i crawl out of kind of the undercarriage of the vehicle where my body was and i was in the fetal position and i kicked the back of the ladder out and then i black out i remember looking down off the back of the seven ton and i black out well apparently (laughs) my buddies are like homie you had crackhead strength and you literally because the seven ton's like a seven foot drop right Apparently, I leaped out the back with my all my gear out like 10 feet off the back of the truck. And then I sprinted into a field uh, away from the vehicle. And I come back to, I wake up, and I'm on a knee setting security for myself in the middle of the field. And then I call my guys, and I'm like, get out of the truck. And I get, all my, I get my squad out of the truck from the squad leader. I'm like, get out of the truck. And we assault the house, and we... Assault the house and we find six guys in this, in, in this environment. Now this, this environment, there's no one in the city, no one in the town. We dropped leaflets. Everyone knew we were coming. These were the only six guys in the area. They were, so when, when they're going to fight you, they got like tennis shoes and sweatpants on. Yeah. I'm saying when they're doing their normal stuff, they got their, you know, their, their dresses and, you know, their chill. These guys had tennis shoes and sweats, you know, so they're for sure moves. So we, you know, we pull them out, we line them up. And I remember just looking around and I, I found, you know, you could tell who the alpha was. And I got all my guys out. We said security and uh, we have guns on them. And I said, uh, uh, who speaks, who speaks English? And, uh, the one guy looked at me with straight, perfect, like he was from New York or something, perfect English. And he goes, I don't speak English. And he smiles at me. And I remember there was a choice point because some of my guys were like, these guys for sure are the ones that blew us up. Let's smoke these fools. And we got drop weapons in the truck. Like it's war. And I could see, like, I felt like God let me see the future and I could see my guys older. I could see the kids that were under my charge. I could see them trying to live with this experience. I could see them becoming alcoholics. I could see them ruining their families. I could see guilt. I could see all this stuff. And I felt like the Holy spirit was like, no. And I remember looking at those guys and being like, Okay. So we arrested them, which we knew they'd be back out in, you know, 24 hours with, with a couple hundred bucks and uh, water. And, uh, we would find them on the battlefield again. But, uh, yeah, that experience changed my life. So I thank God for that. That's a, that's my Phoenix moment. That's what I call it. Amazing. That's honestly one of the most gripping stories we've ever aired on this show. And I love the juxtaposition of one, the combat scene, you going out, blacking out, being in the black zone and then coming back. But I also love how your prayer, your most sincere (laughs) conversation with God includes, I'll go hard in the paint. I'll I'll go go so hard in the paint. I'm going to go ham. I said hard in the paint and ham. And this is, this is the whole thing. It's all about the humanity and the relationship and like no holier. There were no vows in that prayer, bro. Straight up coming from my heart. 
the father speaks our language and I got to you know, I got to just say that this was visceral. And that right there is a beautiful, beautiful story, which doesn't immediately segue into becoming an executive protector. And I think he had his hand on you at least one more time, if not dozens. But certainly as you make the transition out of the Marine Corps, you're at the moment in every young man's life. When you're done with that, you've survived those chapters of your life and you can go on to do really anything. And you could go hard in the paint and be the best dang tax accountant for somebody. You could go hard in the paint and get yourself into med school and be working on, you know, the cure for cancer. You could be, do, I mean, you could do any number of things. And you chose again to become a protector. But what I was taken with when we first met was how that yeah. divine spiritual hand reached into your life and kind of moved some of the chess pieces on the board before you. Tell me about God said, be a bouncer at a bar. And how that ended up waltzing you into the executive protection services that you do today. Yeah. So I, you know, so I'm, I'm at this other crossroads in my life and I, I'm facing kind of the big thing that a lot of veterans are afraid of. And I think that really destroys a lot of us is just like, what am I going to do? You know, like, what am I going to do? Like I tried to be a cop that didn't work out. Um, and I'm just like, you know, what, like, what's going to happen? What do you have next for me? Like, I like to think I'm special. Like, I like to think it's going to be like something cool. Like, but how do you top the Marine Corps? I'm already actually dealing with the PTSD of trying to come down from the dopamine and the intensity of war, which that's a whole nother story, actually, which kind of kicks off right around this time of my life. So then I'm sitting here and I'm like, father, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? You know, like, you know, people look at me, they think I'm big and strong and cool, but like, I've been protected. You know what I mean? Like you give me the, you give me the cheat codes. Like, what am I supposed to do? And he's like, go bounce at this bar, Hennessy's Tavern in Dana Point. You're going to be a bodyguard. You're going to travel the world. And I'm like, boom, got it. Cause this is the voice that's, that's driven me through my life, man. And it saved my life. And so I, I, I get, uh, to my living room and my girlfriend at the time is like, you know, I, I'm like, I know what it is. I know what I'm going to do. And she's like, what are you going to do? And I'm like, I'm going to go bounce at Hennessy's Tavern. And she's like, no, you're not. No way. You're not going to do that. There's no way. Like, cause she knew that was the end of her, you know, like I'm going to go bounce at this place. Like, it's just, you know, it's all bad for some 20 something year olds. Right. So, um, no doubt. And no. not to mention the fact a big handsome brother working at the door of this really nice club over there in like Dana Point, yeah. California, where the beautiful people are and models and oh, actresses. Yeah. And like, I mean, it's, you know, the California elite. Uh, yeah, I can imagine one. She didn't want you to take that job. And two, who honestly, without having known the totality of your life story, believes that you just had a voice tell you to go be a bouncer. Are you sure that voice was not Jose Cuervo's? Are you sure? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, like, I mean, it doesn't that even was sound believable. A hundred percent. And that was the conversation that ensued. And I was like, I, and I, and I, I said something that was really Jesus-y to her, which was really interesting when I think about it in retrospect, because I was a Christian, you know, I'm a, I'm a strong Christian, but she was like new to the game. So I was like, listen, I know this voice. It's guided me through my life. All I ask is that when it happens, the way I'm telling you it's going to happen is that you believe. Because I'm basically telling her, like, I'm going to go play flag football and get recruited to the NFL. <laughs> and I heard a voice what told me it's going to happen, so I'm going to go bounce now. So I go bounce, and three months later, um, three months later, 
I'm clearing, busting a table, and I hear a dude, and I'm just trying to be a good dude busting tables. I don't have to bust tables. I'm a bouncer. But I'm, like, just trying to be a good dude, man. And I, I, I talk to, I hear this voice, and it's like, have him do it. Apparently, the detail leader for one of the large, for one of the high, highest traveled executive protection details in California uh, is sitting there with one of his buddies, who's one of his recruiters, and it's like, yo, let's snatch this guy up. And they're like, have this guy do it. And they've been watching me all night. They were watching me when I checked their IDs. They've been just basically studying me. And I'm entering the conversation. I'm like, hey, what's up? Like, how do you do what? And, uh, you know, my buddy, Luke Agajanian, who's still my buddy to this day, he's like, you're a United States Marine? I'm like, yes, sir. He's like, uh, you got combat experience? I'm like, yes, sir. He's like, go get these two permits. Give me a call back in two weeks, and I'll show you how to make a lot more money doing what you're doing. I'm like, roger that. Got his phone number. Went, got the permits. Gave him a call back in two weeks. I said, hey, it's all in the works. It's happening. Got my first one. Got my guard card. Got my exposed weapons permit on the way. He's like, good to go. I blink. I'm on Rodeo Drive in the back of a Bentley doing a job interview, uh, trying to get into a jewelry store for the job interview. There's no door on the handle because only like famous people and made men go to this jewelry store. So, so they open the door for you or they don't open the door for you. Uh, I blink and my first year in executive protection, we cleared over 60 countries, probably like 65 countries. Uh, we traveled more than the president of the United States that year. And it was for a religious figure. And so it was just everything coming full circle once again, which was pretty amazing. And when people are like, you know, I didn't choose the game, the game chose me. Like, no, that's really my life. And I was guided once again. And that's how I got into this industry. You know, and it was such a gift. A lot of guys get in the industry, they were with a celebrity and they go on tour and they're like, yeah, we're going to be touring hard for three months. This wasn't like that. This was, we're spreading the gospel as fast and hard as we can. So we just stayed on the road, you know, and I did that for seven years. So it was a tremendous amount of experience to get at age 21 in 2008, which you're already too young to be in the industry anyway, right? <laughs> you know, uh, according to those standards and at that level. And then. The rest is history. You know, I moved down to Florida, started my company there, rebuilt my career there, and then came back out here to California eventually uh, and, and established, really established my company and did all those things. Again, the company is Bravo Research Group. We'll put some links to it in the show notes, but uh, we're talking to Byron Rogers, Marine combat veteran and executive protection detail specialist, trainer and man of God. Man, that's absolutely awesome. I'll say one thing I'm taken with by that last clip was the fact that God talks to you in kind of like a gut feeling. And I think a lot of people hear the famous stories, whether it's scripture or whether it's other kind of things. And they're like, well, you know, he's never talked to me that way. And what I love how you've broken down now several times through your life is it's not some big James Earl Jones voice. That's, you know, hey, Byron, you need to go outside now. <laughs> it's yeah. it, it's not this cartoonish thing. It is the Holy Spirit's kind of intuition working through you is a gut feeling. And to have yeah. sometimes a thought that pops up out of nowhere that you can't explain how you even had the thought is exactly what I hear when you talk about doing dishes, hanging at the apartment, you and your girl, mm -hmm. she's probably on yeah. you about when you're going to get a job, you keep kind of drifting yeah. between jobs. You don't seem happy by it. You should get a job. Uh, go back to school. And yeah. here you get this gut feeling. That's not just, huh? 
I'm interested in executive protection. Maybe I should do that. No, it is specific down to the go get a job at this place called Hennessy's. And yeah. boom, three months later, the chess pieces are moving and you are then off to the races learning how to be, you know, the premier, the elite job yeah. in security. Uh, for those listening and myself, let's jump into what executive protection is. How is it different than bodyguards that I've seen? And you'd right. mentioned it yourself. You know, I'm going to go on tour with a rock band. I've interviewed Aerosmith, ZZ Top. I've been around rock stars. I've been backstage at the big concert pavilions and seen everything from the chain smoking, neck tattooed roadie to this extremely yep. buff guy walking around with an earpiece in that even if you tried to like make small talk with him, he'd stand there by the loading dock and never look at you. He might answer a right. few of your questions. Hey, how you doing? But he, his eyes are locked. He's yeah. looking all around. You see it in DC constantly. The dudes in the suits oh, yeah. and the earpieces, they are the elite executive protection. But talk to me about what that job is and what that world looks like. And maybe, you know, a couple, no, there I was moments with, uh, yeah. some famous clientele you've had. Yeah, no, and I, and on, on that, you know, God guiding my life real quick too. Yeah, it's, it's been awesome. It's come in a few ways. It's like either I'm at a choice point and I'm reading his word. And it's like, you know what you're supposed to do. It's right there. Just do what you're supposed to do. <laughs> like, 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 you know, cause I think people sometimes want to hear from God. It's like, no, nah, bro. Like the Bible tells you what to do. Just do it. Do what's in there. And you just don't want to do it. So you're like, God, tell me something else, you know? <laughs> and then there's the times when it's just like a little whisper and it's just like zig, don't zag, bro. But then those other times, like when I was sitting on my couch, it was like a similitude. It was like almost, it was not of me. It was almost like a little, almost a voice that was like, you're going to go to Hennessy's. You're going to become a, you're going to become a bodyguard. And you're going to travel the world. Right. And I was like, huh? Okay. Cool. And I was praying and, and asking for guidance. I didn't know what to do. I may have been fasting. I've, fasting is huge. I do a lot of that. So it's been amazing. But now, yeah, you know, operating as an executive protection agent. Yeah. What does that look really, like on the daily or what does that experience yeah. look like? Are these like explain kind of what they do? The second I try to get my head around it, then Hollywood pops in and I just see the movies <laughs> and it's like, how is it? Yeah. God really? bless the bodyguard movie. Everyone's only education into what we do is like the scourge of our existence, actually. But <laughs> um yeah, man. So we really we facilitate. uh We help our clients facilitate their lives safely. You know, so we put strategies and teams in place and hardware and software in place to help our clients live safer lives, which in turn optimizes their life. So instead of driving to work uh, or worrying about a risk or threat, we're handling all of that. And uh, we're like the element of security. They have a trip. We handle and coordinate the entire trip. We land before the trip. We go on all the excursions. We establish points of contact for every single one of the excursions. We make sure everything is to our client's liking and to their safety. It's like, it's, you know, it's like security concierge in a lot of ways. We establish all of our um, local security assets and medical assets in the area. And we essentially coordinate a safe trip, a safe life, a safe, uh, we handle, we handle and organize their residential security, their event security, um, and their close protection. And we make it all work, right? So it's really like a security manager, right? A bodyguard or a close protection agent. That's the guy who's next to you, making sure you're safe in close proximity. Um, and executive protection agents do fulfill that role. 
but the bodyguard or the close protection agent is just one role in uh, one position in what an executive protection agent would be concerned with and would be facilitating and managing for clients. Um, you know, we give clients their time back by handling different tasks and driving and making sure that they're, they're good. And, you know, we track all these metrics and show them like, Hey, we locked your doors 8,059 times this year and handled this many unannounced guests and this many guests and this many security concerns. And, uh, and so there's a lot of metrics attached to it as well to make sure our clients realize the ROI. It's really dangerous because if you do a good job, nothing happens. And they're like, you know, nothing's happened. I don't think we need security anymore. And you're like, nothing's happened because you have security. You know, you know, we do, uh, we cover, uh, open source intelligence, you know, and, uh, patrol our clients' online properties and do offensive security operations, uh, knock and talks on weirdos that say weird things and, uh, with law enforcement and, uh, and push into the private investigation space and try to understand preemptive things that might be getting ready to happen to clients as well. So there's so much more that goes into securing an individual's life beyond just being jacked and tan and next to them, but you got it, but you should be jacked and tan because jacked and tan sells <laughs> security, baby. You know what I'm saying? Your client should walk around with you and feel that they are gaining brand equity. I have a fit, competent, Human being who can speak good will represent my brand, presents well uh, as I go through life. That's who they want with them uh, because you represent their brand. And, and if you work for me, you represent my brand. And ultimately, you represent your brand as well. You know, and yeah. I represent him. And hopefully, you do too. So this is kind of the game. But but make no mistake, you know, yeah, you'll find yourself putting a car seat in the car, you know, five, ten minutes before they leave uh, in, in real time to go to that one restaurant from last week that they don't remember, but they figure you remember. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, you'll have to be the guy with the bug spray when you take them on a hike and, and have all the right meds and, you know, have to, you know, be able to deal with anything medical related. You know, you need it. There's so many skill sets that go into it. You have to master your medical. You have to understand your driving. You have to understand, you know, de-escalation. And most importantly, if you want to stay in this game long, you've got to understand social dynamics and you have to be able to gain cultural equity in their environment and you have to be able to uh, manufacture and procure high quality relationships not only with the client but with the royal court all their friends uh corporate you know you have your client and you have your principal the person you're protecting the person that's paying the bills you know there's usually a lot of time to different people you know so uh it's a high level game it's one percent of the private security uh industry and i've seen a lot of great men that are door kickers that can't make it because of the social dynamics and different things like that. Yeah. Yeah. And the Marine Corps, the army Rangers, you know, all the tip of the spear type stuff. Yeah. The social dynamic, not always as critical sometimes because you had mission orders and a black Hawk helicopter behind you back in the right. This is out in the real world. Now I know we can all visualize the first example I gave sort of backstage at a concert, Lady Gaga or whoever, you know, you've got the, you've got the bodyguard there and then you've got the protection detail that's surrounded the building. Check the entrances, check the pathway from the venue to the hotel, knowing how to drive, knowing that there's a lead car, a, you know, a trailer car. Um, and it's really to help them efficiently get where they're going without the risk of, you know, obviously crazed fans or, 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 you know, homicidal people. They are out there. We don't have to watch the news too long before you read about one. However, right. on the corporate side, I did some reading on this and I was fascinating. You'll go in, let's say a corporate executive. I've read yeah. about like corporate executives that have interests in Sudan or have to attend a meeting 
you know, in Brussels, but they're carrying intelligence on them that bad actors want. And I think this is just movies, but there are people out there whose whole job it is as mercenaries are to take out certain CEOs or to take out or to steal the intelligence that they have or the patent that they have or the whatever the heck it is, like keys to the hundred million dollars in some bank account. There's people out there whose whole job is to go out there and steal that. And you are the one that has to keep those kinds of wolves away from the sheep. Can you share with me a moment? Like, I'm sure I can't ask you about who your clients have been. Right. Can you share with me kind of like a, a vague description of, of kind of what a detail is like? Yeah, man. I mean, detail, what a detail's like is, you know, you go in and you do your advance work, you make it as safe as possible. And then they land and you execute your security strategy. And usually there's one or two fly balls in there that they throw in there like, Hey, I want to go to that smoothie place. And you're like, you know, you're, you're diverting assets and try to make it as safe as possible. And if you're talking about like a, you know, so there I was situation. Um, yeah. We've had a couple, man. We've had a couple. I, and fortunately, by the grace of God, nothing catastrophic's happened. You know, we're in the DR, uh, using local assets for security. The DR was, you know. Dominican Republic? Dominican Republic, yeah. yeah. was following yeah. closely behind some of the stuff that we're seeing in, uh, you know, Haiti, just kidnappings like crazy at, at this time. And, um, you know, we're driving a client back to the hotel and, uh, there's a police roadblock. And I'm sitting here like, okay, here we go. Police roadblock. And these guys were awesome, man. This is one of the best. And it was so long ago. I, I've lost touch with these guys. I wish I could find these guys again. This is one of the best security got teams I've ever had. And I'm sitting there kind of calling the shots. You know, I'm, I'm the, I'm the guy from my shop doing a joint operation with local security and DR and we're rolling and these guys have bikes. We're getting all the cars out of the way. We were cutting through traffic. And sure enough, uh, police roadblocks in the way. Uh, I'm like, oh, cops. And he just keeps driving. And I'm like, oh, cops, bro. And he just keeps driving. And I'm like, bruh, cops. And, uh, the front vehicle comes up, boom, catches the front, uh, the front of the cop, the back of the cop truck, moves it, pushes it out of the way with the bars. Boom, we go flying by. We're flying by this. And I'm, I'm looking at him like looking at my guy, my, my, my team leader for the local team. I'm like, bro, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm going to be an accessory. We're not trying to go to jail today. And I'm never, I'm like, what, what, we can't just do, can we just do that? And he's like, those are not police. I'm like, they have, what? And he's like, those are not police. Look at them. Are they chasing us? And I'm like, no, they're not chasing us. And he's like, get to the hotel. We have to get to the hotel. So we fly to the hotel, man. We go firm and secure and they step out and deal with, make sure no one's following us. We do some, some cleaning moves. You know, and that's like one of those situations where you stop. Maybe that roadblock was for us. You know, um, you just mm-hmm. never know when you're moving people that are that important. You know, I'm in uh, Congo. I'm in Congo and I'm standing in a room full of money, like up to my knees, like not a big room, but not a small room. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I remember I'm sitting here and I'm and it's like Congolese dollars, like about a foot and a half or so all over the floor. And I got these nice, I got people in there trying to manage it and count it and all these things are happening. And I just, I'm looking around at the situation. I got, I got, I got windows that are like torn blankets draped over these holes in the cement walls to the building. Right. And everyone's trying to organize the money and get it so we can move it. And I'm just like, 
I'm looking out the windows and, you know, our police escort, you know, they're standing out there with the long rifles and they're kind of looking over their shoulders. And I'm like, oh man, this is not it. And, you know, a couple of people are walking by and they're now they're looking inside the building. And like, all of a sudden there's like a mob outside, all looking inside the building. And I'm just like, we got to go. And I hit my boy who was a detail leader. And I'm like, hey, we got to move, man. We got a mob starting up out here. And we grab as much of that money as we can, throw it in the bags. Uh, we end up leaving a bunch of it, get the client. One team evacuates the client from the meeting that he's in, grabs him, boom, 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 puts him in the car, lets me know where we secure the drop, make sure no one's at our actual vehicle because they didn't know where exactly our vehicle was. We get in the car, the mob runs over and now starts mobbing the vehicle. We try to throw the money in the back of the the, the vehicle, we end up leaving it. Now, granted, this is, this is a room full of Congolese dollars. It's probably like $250 US, but still, you know what I mean? Like, so, you know, we end up leaving some of the money. These people flood the vehicle. We have to get out of the vehicle and fight our way off the premises, uh, from the mob. Simultaneously, a call comes in from our team that's at the private jet. They're out on the runway. They're hitting us up like, Hey, bro. We got to get out of here, dude. This airport is, uh, they're extorting us. Like every 30, 20 to 30 minutes, they're coming up to the side of the plane. Hey, with their AKs, Mr. Mr. Airport tax, $250. Hey, Mr. Mr. It's Tuesday night tax, $250. And so my pilot's sitting here and he's like, he's like, I'm going to run out of cash. I don't know what they're going to do when I run out of cash. We have to get in the air now. We're evacuating the client, getting this call, trying to get to them as quick as we can. They're getting extorted. Uh, we leave pretty much everyone there, but we still have our police escort, which is kind of sketchy. We're really uncomfortable with them. We end up getting to the airport. We don't have our police escort anymore. We pull up to the front gate, and sure enough, there's two little kids, poncho liners, AKs, at the like, just like Blood Diamond, just like the movie Blood Diamond, sitting there at the front gate. You know, and we're giving them the tail number. We point to the plane. Fortunately, they let us on. We get the client in the plane and the airport won't give us permission to take off. They're like, you still have to pay this tax and this tax. And the pilot's like, uh, I'm taking off. So he goes, he gets on the air, airstrip and he starts hitting it. And they're like, we will shoot you down. We will shoot you down. He's like, you don't have an air force. Take it up with our handlers with, uh, you know, signature air, our handlers. Um, we're getting out of here and we just all grip the seats. And we get in the air, you know, oh <laughs> that's an, that, that's one of the most extreme situations, but, um, okay. So know. it's way more than being a bodyguard. You guys were wheels yeah, up and out before the yeah. entire scene devolved into just mad grabs for money and armed locals looking for some blood, man. But then on a daily basis, you know, like, complacency can kill you. Your clients have you in place, maybe because their insurance company is like, you have this amount of risk. We did a risk vulnerability and threat assessment. You need professional protection. Clients don't want you there, but there's an actual risk, you know? So you have to walk this line of them not wanting you there, but you still have to make it secure because at any point in time, it could be that sophisticated attack. It could be that group that's been watching, that's looking to victimize them, or it could be a follow home robbery from Rodeo Drive. We had a, a bodyguard a few, just a few years ago, we had in a shootout with a few dudes from a follow home robbery. And so there's just a whole spectrum of different threats and vulnerabilities that we limit the vulnerabilities, but risks that people in the demographic that, you know, I serve have to deal with. 
not to mention the social engineering and digital attacks and things like that. So, you know, having a solid residential team, a solid movement team, and um, solid protocols around figuring these things out, mitigating the risks is really where the game's won. Wow. Even I know I've said that like three times during this interview. I mean it every time. Like I'm a journalist. I have command of thousands of words. And the one I come up with each time is either wow or uh, God bless. I mean, just amazing how this thread has been woven through some divine inspiration in your life and, you know, the Holy Spirit working through you, but that you continually serve as a protector. That is so dang cool. Um Kind of off the list of questions here, but just curious. Um, I, again, you can't name clients, but like, can I ask yeah. people you've met? You ever met Lady Gaga? You ever met Katy Perry? You ever met Jennifer Lopez? I mean, I'm, I'm trying to think of like people that are iconic billionaires in the industry and like, uh, yeah. Oprah. I'm, have you ever met any? I've met a number. I've met some of those that you're talking about. <laughs> okay. You know, um, you know, and, and have been really blessed. You know, now. I don't just, you know, when I was coming up in the industry, I had to take everything because, you know, I just had to keep moving and keeping the industry. And I did a lot of domestic contracting. So like I, when I was an agent, I worked for like seven different com- companies and they would send me emails and I would take this gig if it looked interesting and that one and build out my month of different, you know, working for different clients and companies. So I worked every client demographic in our industry. I got to work the um, Trump inauguration and do joint stuff with, you know, secret service and guys there. Mm. Um that was really, really a cool operation to be on. Um, but, uh, you know, yeah, I've worked for a lot of them, you know, a lot of the That's celebs. Cool. Now I get to pick. That's the cool thing. Now that I've been in the industry a while, my company established, I can choose who I want to serve. And honestly, like, I love serving, you know, corporate clients, old money clients, high net worth families. But my real passion lately has been securing schools and churches, man. I love securing schools and churches. That's really been very, very uh, fruitful. And so it's not necessarily executive protection, but getting competent, trained professionals in these environments or helping churches set up their security strategy and plan. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that stuff's been really cool too. And oh, that's awesome. Doing some humanitarian stuff and extractions and things. Those are awesome as well. <laughs> Oh yeah, just a couple extractions here and there. That's okay. <laughs> um, I love how underplayed everything is with you. Uh, let's see. That is, um, well, one, yeah. I'm glad to see that a female pop star has never like secretly fallen in love with you and then changed the trajectory of your whole life. And then, you know, you're, uh, but that's already been done. I think that's, that's, yeah, already- yeah, yeah, you know. Um, this is so dang cool though that like at any minute I could flip through your phone and I could get like, you know, Jennifer Lopez's number. That is, man, that is, and, and you can't fan out on him either. Cause like you've got all these, I, I think of the calculus you're thinking of, like they could literally be sitting there talking to you like Byron, you know, you're so handsome and blah, blah, blah. And, and you're just like, you're, you're just sitting there at the edge of the bar, like nodding your head, not even really looking at her because your eyes are trained on this <laughs> sketchy looking dude walking through the lobby with the dog leash and no dog. And he's been there for like 30 minutes. And you're like, oh, yeah. <laughs> this is really, you're good. You're good, man. That's awesome. Just I order another it. Manhattan, J-Lo. I'm going to be right here. Don't talk to me for five minutes. Uh, right, so cool. Um, what are everyday skills we can learn from EP pros like yourself? Um, 
I've had this conversation with Pat McNamara, former Delta Force, yeah. and I always thought it was really cool how he told me to do the 525 scan when I'm at Walmart or Home Depot or just doing my errands. I found that so helpful. I don't have to be a paranoid meal sure team not. six fat guy kitted up in camo with open carry. I can be just a regular right. old dad, but there right. are some skills that you guys possess that I think would benefit us all. And most yeah. certainly in this day and age when we hear about shooting tragedies, Just in the news this last week, too numerous to mention in the course of the last 10 years, but there are some skills that I think all of us should have. What can I learn from a guy like you? So now we tap into what I believe is really my, my current purpose, right? Which is, you know, making the world a safer place by helping good people to be more willing, capable, and prepared, helping good people to be more dangerous in some cases. So I'm a protector that seeks to multiply protectors in the world. Like, I believe protectors are the white blood cells in the body of humanity. There's an active shooter. What's going to happen? Probably angels probably won't zip line in, kick the windows in and, and, and take them out. Probably he's going to dominate until a good person shows up. And that is formidable enough to extinguish the threat. And that's what we see. And that's what I saw in Iraq. And that's what we see all day, every day. And these active shooter situations. So, um, you know, a lot of my brands now on the public facing side are literally geared towards Helping the general public, you know, when we do our live events, I have a mom that's 110 pounds come up to me and say, wow, this changed my life. I learned so much about protection. And I have a, a secret, I have a, a guy that's, you know, in an agency and he can't even tell me who he works for. He's like, dude, this is great, man. Thanks so much. Like when we do those events and that happens, boom. So my goal is to, I'm a civilian that protects civilians. And so my goal now is to help get these skills that I use, these, these tactics that I use out into the public. So I love this question. <laughs> um, yeah. What's uh, one and, I can use? What's one that like I could use and, 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 and not need a lot of training on, but like just yeah. something I could implement in my daily life as I travel with my family to, uh, you know, the local yeah. shopping places. Mm-hmm. So I have kind of four pillars that I talk about. You hear a lot of people talk about situational awareness and use situational awareness, but that's too broad. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's like, what is that? What are we really, really right? So I break things down into kind of this is what you should be doing any and every time you're leaving your house. Um, and it has to do with a little bit of advancing. So context, where are you going? What are you doing? What are the risks associated with that? Right. When you're in transitional spaces, meaning from your house door to your car door, from your house to work, these are spaces where you're in transition. This is where 80 percent of attacks happen. Because this is where you're not really, really ready. You're just focused kind of on where you're going. You don't recognize anomalies in the environment. So context, where am I going? I'm going to a house party. Do I know everyone at the house party? These are the type of people that I need to be paying attention to. Where am I going? I'm going to an elevator to get to my car after shopping. I'm going to be in, an, I'm going to be in a parking garage. There's a little bit of risk involved in that. If, you know, for me, a 240 pound athletic dude, maybe less, but for someone else, So understand context of where you're going and let that context guide you to the actual kind of risk associated to that, right? So think about that. Um, Tactical positioning. Where are you in your space and in your environment? Uh, If you're in an elevator, someone's standing behind you, or can you put your back to the wall, maybe hold something that you might use to defend yourself? You know, like take your cell phone, hold it in your hand and get ready to slam it into someone's (laughs) if you need to. Um, where are you seated? Do you have visual mastery of your environment? Uh, so that if someone was going to do something, you will see it and have more time to react to it. You're at that house party. Do you take up a seat that gives you that visual mastery of the environment? So tactical positioning, 
proxemics and tactical positioning walk hand in hand. If I'm around somebody, I don't need to have already scoped them out and know that they look like a gangster or look like a threat. If they're back here, like behind my about three or four o'clock in that space, I just don't want them there. So tactical positioning would state like, hey, let me canton myself a little bit so that I can kind of still see and have some advantages if something's happening. It's almost like driving when a car's in your blind spots. It's like, get out of there. Like, just don't be there. So always being aware of context, tactical tactical positioning, and then running a rolling risk assessment. Who's in my environment? What's the alibi? Uh, I just got off of a plane. I'm standing curbside. Everyone here should be pretty much waiting for a ride, helping people with luggage, and doing curbside at an airport things. Who's just watching? That's the guy that I need to watch. Uh, we're at a gas station. Everyone should be going to the convenience store, filling up their car. Uh, who's just kind of hanging out? Who's just kind of watching? You know, uh, I'm doing a rolling risk assessment. Now, once I assess that, I, once I see someone not within the baseline of acceptable social behavior in that environment, now I continue uh, assessing, right? Uh, what's their waistline look like? How physically potent are they? Are they? What are they focusing on? Who are they trained on? Do they have tactical positioning on me? Are they between me and the door? Or, am I, or do I have another exit? Like, then you start dialing things up. So tactical positioning, uh, so context, tactical positioning, rolling risk assessment, and then the final one is have a plan. So I have a plan. I sit down in a restaurant. I'm like, yo, this is my nearest exit. Boom, boom, boom. I got visual mastery. And this becomes second nature, right? Uh, okay, I'm at a gas station. Like, what if a weirdo walks up to me right now? Well, I'm standing here. I got my back up against my car. So if someone's going to get to me, they got to go around the car and come to me. I'm filling up my gas. And if someone comes to me, eh, I'll sprint into the convenience store or I'll just get in my car. The door's already unlocked. I'll have my car lock the door. And drive off, you know, just have a plan. And so those are my four pillars of protection. And at first, it seems like a lot, but it's like driving. You get in a car. At first, you're like, oh, I got to look at my signal mirror over the shoulder. Like, And then after you do it for a while, you're brushing your teeth and you're sending a text message while you're driving, even though you're not supposed to. But your brain gets the software and then you live a safer pattern of life. Wow. That's awesome. That is uh, a lot of what I talked to Pat Mack about couple years back and you know i think about just a couple situations in my own life uh you know it was a date night with my wife and you know you go out you don't have your kids you're ready to go out and have some fun but i mean you could be you know if you go to an irish pub you have to be cognizant of where the drunk frat boys are or of where a fight might be breaking out or that it's getting to be 10 o'clock and a man of my age probably doesn't need to be rubbing elbows with you know the late night rowdy crowd certainly not with my beautiful wife at my side, I need to be right. looking around the room, seeing who looks like they might be overserved, who might be a little yep. bit of a problem, who over there is yelling and has an axe to grind. Is there somebody over there having an actual yeah. fight with two other guys or, or, or a heated argument? Like that's all situational stuff, but you just gave the specifics of how to kind of look at that and be filtering it. Like you said, seems like a lot at first, but once you get used to doing it, you're able to do that and. Your example of being at a convenience store, I got to admit, man, raise raise some hairs in the back of my neck. I was recently on a veteran reunion 
just some yeah. friends of mine from our ship. And one of our friends, lover to death, Fabiola, uh, uh, she's in a wheelchair and I'm with another gal and, uh, Stephanie's driving and they're waiting for me and we're near this hotel. I didn't know where the double tree hotel was. I did not know where the closest liquor store was and I had no idea it was on the wrong side of the road or the wrong side yeah. of the tracks. So we go to this seven 11. I think it's just a normal convenience store, but it's dark. We, pull in, I can hear opera music playing outside the 7-Eleven loudly. And I'm like, that's unusual. And yeah. I asked the guy, at the you know, I asked the clerk, how come the opera's so loud outside? And what's up with the sketchy, weird looking 7-Eleven? Like, wh- what's going on here? Am I in the Twilight Zone? And he's like, oh, right. no, the owner plays that music to keep people from hanging out on the stoop because we've had a lot of problems here in the past few years. And sure enough, I'm walking out with 12 pack. I'm going to jump back in the SUV, the SUV with my girls yeah. and who comes walking around the corner, but some guy and he wants to talk to me. He's like, Hey, yeah. Hey, Hey. And he's yelling at me. And he, and I'm just like, I jump in that car and I'm like, go, 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 go. And I, no, not today. The, yeah. <laughs> I don't know if he not was good. Too. I don't know if he was bad, but you know what? I don't know. <laughs> And, that's and I good. didn't need, I didn't need to find out either, man. We just got in there and we took off and it could have been innocuous. It could have been benign, but man, that situational awareness, that kind of training is brilliant. And I'm so glad in this day and age of these horrific news events, these shootings, whether it's a school, whether it's a mall, whether it's just something that there are people out there, there's brothers out there like you that are going to teach us how to protect ourselves, but it takes a warrior. It takes a protector who has been in it and has this vast experience you have to help us learn from. I, we need this. We need you more than ever. The schools need you. The churches need you. Um, citizenry needs the protectors. So I, it's an honor to talk to you. Byron Rogers, Marine Corps vet. Whew, so cool, brother. So cool. Uh, share with me one last thing as we stick the landing here. We've learned about what I need to know about how to protect myself and make my own executive protection detail. What do I need to know about faith? It's about relationship. It's very interesting. What I would say about faith is like, you're just never alone, man. And there's a loving God. Like this morning I went on a rant on my, on my IG. You know, if you, if you just do the math, there's over a million things that could have went wrong in the womb. You ever look up how many of your relatives had to get it right in order to get you here? There's hundreds of them. You ever look at, you know, the literal, the literal probability, the literal probability of this planet being here, literally, that, that can, they can support human life. The literal, look, Google the literal probability of consciousness or more than a, like a single celled organism showing up here. Like what is the probability of an actual conscious being on this planet? These numbers are astronomical. And so there's a verse in the Bible that talks about like, what about all the people that didn't know about God? And God responds. He says, all they needed to do was open their eyes, open your eyes and look outside. And we were born on a planet that has everything we need to the point where all the technology in the world and all the food, they don't, they don't know what about this 50, 60, 70 trillion cells of technology that I'm using. They can't understand it. You know what I mean? Like all the things we've created. And what do people want? Organic. <laughs> they want one in foods because if man created it, it's just not, it's probably not, it's probably killing you in some way. It might taste good, but it's killing you. 
we were given a planet where we had everything, we have everything we need that is best for us. And we've been given choice. And we've been given choice, which is the ultimate gift, gift of love. That's the ultimate gift of love. Choice to do our own godship, ownership. You know, let man have dominion. That's what he said in Genesis. And that's why this is an imperfect world because we live with imperfect people. And so don't look to the church necessarily and don't look to people that say they're Christians around you, but ask God to be real to you through Jesus Christ and you will find a relationship. That is all I can give you because what I've been given, I was given freely and it sustained me and it's protected me and it's guided me. I'm going to give my testimony on a podcast at some point. I'm going to call it protected, you know, but, but any, but he's turned me into a formidable, strong, intelligent, loving man. And it's like, I'm, I spend so much of my life in awe. And if he took it away from me tomorrow, you know, I just, the love that I've experienced and that I continue to experience and the grace that I've experienced in the belly of hell. We didn't talk about when I got left in Iraq for seven days, thought for sure I was going to die with my squad at the top of a, of, of a hill. And he's given me grace to endure everything. And so what I want you guys to, to, to think about is one, the love that you got already just getting here. There's a God that loves you and he wants to have a relationship with you through Jesus Christ. And it sounds crazy, but ask him to make himself real to you and try, try, try him. And um, he's never left me. He's never forsaken me and he's never let me down. And so that's what I'd say. Focus on relationship, not do's and don'ts. He didn't come here to give you a, a do's and don'ts list. He came here and created you for, for relationship. We weren't, weren't living in a situation where we had to create, do everything for money. You know what you would be doing? We'd be doing things for mankind and we'd be experiencing relationship with our creator, which is just the most amazing thing we have an opportunity to do during this life. That's what I'd say, man. Preach, preach, man. That is so good. And it is beautiful. He has never forgotten you. He has never forsaken you. And he has made you the protector. Absolutely outstanding. And we could riff on and on and on. I'm not even going to get to my, because I testified with you when we first met on the phone a week ago. But, uh, you know, he he saved me. He's spoken through me, and I called him out. Um, he wants a relationship. And when you reach out, it's amazing the things that will happen. You know, living through combat to uh, being inspired to be a bouncer at a bar. Man, he put you in the place that you needed to be to do the good work that you do. And to that good work, where do I find more out about what you're doing, uh, the ways I can engage with you? You know, I know that uh, we've got yeah. Bravo Research Group. If you're looking for executive protection specialists, uh, you tell me how I find you and where I can read more about you. Yeah, uh, Bravo Research Group is where you'll learn about my company. Uh, the Protector Nation is the brand I use to educate the public on protection. We do in-person live training. We have uh, our first social media, the first social media platform for protectors at Protector Nation. Join the community, meet everyone, and start just learning. You know, um, uh, the League of Executive Protection Specialists, and that's at ProtectorNation.com. The League of Executive Protection Specialists is where I teach in anybody. Guys transitioning out of law enforcement, the military, and civilians, how to become professional protectors. We have training there that's unlike any of the training in the world in the space. Um, and I love that. I'm going to go graduate a class uh, 
you know, in, in, in a day or so, I'm going to drive out there. I love seeing the look on their face after that hard skills intensive. Um, and then, um, you know, but Instagram is where my content usually drops first. YouTube notable piece of content for you guys is the, uh, tactical protection reviews over 150 videos of me going through real world violent encounters and how you can survive and, 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 and do well in those. Uh, and then I also have a book called finding meaning after the military about the skills and the software God kind of guided me to use in order to, uh, survive and thrive and find meaning after the time of service. So that's me, man, in a nutshell. Dude, that is absolutely awesome. And uh, can I just say that I'm inspired to want to be in the league of executive protection specialists? I don't have the time. I don't have the time to do it, and I probably can't fit it into my lifestyle right now. But just I, to know that I'd be a member of the League of Executive Protection Specialists, it sounds like straight out of Marvel. And if I were to join, I I tell you this, I I, I want to wear a cape at graduation. I want to have a cape and tights, <laughs> and, you know, that says, like, dad mode or something on my chest. Yeah, I love it. I love it. Yeah, I come to our protector symposium. We do once a year interdisciplinary weekend, three, four days. A few hundred people meet up in Arizona and we just learn many skills with regards to being your own protector. That's amazing. Uh, yeah, let's, uh, nail the website one more time. We're talking protectornation.com. Protectornation.com. And then my personal website is byronrogersmotivation.com where you can just kind of find all this stuff. Good stuff. God love you, brother. I know God does love you. And I can't thank you enough for sharing his love, sharing your story and sharing all this amazing stuff that we've talked about for the last hour. Truly one of the best conversations we've had here. And I look forward to seeing more from Byron Rogers, who at his core will always be a Marine. Glad to have you, Byron. Take care of my brother. Thank you so much, Bill. It's been an honor. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Ion Veterans ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary and it's not boring. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. I'm going to be your financial coach, someone who brings common sense and an insider's perspective on how to manage your money and your emotions. And I promise we are going to have a little bit of fun along the way. Have a question from retirement to career changes to college funding? Just send us an email at askjill at jillonmoney.com. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app. Some puzzles are hard to solve. Others are hard to prove. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Access episodes early and ad-free with 48 Hours Plus on Apple Podcasts.